God. Possessing our possessions. He that believeth hath everlasting life. John 5 verse 24. Believing God's testimony is like endorsing a check and cashing it. A gentleman went into the home of a very poor old lady who had applied for relief. He saw something on the wall that attracted his attention. It was a piece of paper in a neat frame. He asked, What is that on the wall? She replied, I just don't know what it is, but it is a paper my uncle sent me and I just don't like to throw it away and so I keep it there in remembrance of him. He exclaimed, Don't you see what it is? No, I just don't understand it. Well, it's a bank check. Look. There is the name of the bank on which it is drawn and it says, pay to Jenny Johnson the sum of $5,000 and there is your uncle's name at the bottom of it. What, she said, did he intend me to have that money? And I have been living in poverty all these years. How many people are like that? They believe the word and God's promises in a certain sense. They know Jesus died to put away sin. But they have never cashed in, they have never trusted him for themselves. The cleansing word. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, Ephesians 5 verse 26. The word is for cleansing as well as for instruction, and if it keeps going through you it will have a marvelous effect upon your mind and heart and life. It will cleanse and purify you and fit you to be a real worker for the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the story of the Scotch laddie who was one of those pernickety youngsters who always wanted a reason for everything he was told to do. He was working for a farmer and when the old man told him to do anything, the lad generally asked, why? This disturbed his employer. On one occasion he said to the boy as he handed him a market basket, take this basket down to the creek and fill it with water. When the laddie asked, why, and started to explain that it would not hold water, the old man replied, none owe your wise. I'm paying for your time, you do as I tell you. So the boy started for the creek with the basket in his hand. Wading into the water, he dipped the basket into the creek and lifted it up. Of course, the water all ran out. Disgusted, he said, it will no hold the water. The old farmer replied, fill it up again. Again the lad obeyed, and once more the water all ran through. His master said, fill it again. This time the boy answered, I'll fill it up once more, but if it does no hold this time, you will no make me a fool again. So he dipped it into the creek the third time, but as he held it up, the water all ran out. Angry, he flung the basket over into the grass, saying, Take your old creel, I'll no be a fool fare ye or anybody else. The old man picked it up good-naturedly and then held it between him and the son. As he examined it carefully, he explained, it's a GUID deal cleaner than it was, and that's what it needed. The water running through it had cleansed away the dirt, and this is how the Word of God affects our lives. Our Lord Jesus prayed, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. We are sanctified by the washing of the water by the word. We cannot give too much time to the study of this blessed book. I do not mean merely studying it in order to get sermons out of it, but what we need is a daily, thoughtful, prayerful study of the Word for the nourishment of our own souls, for building ourselves up in our most holy faith. In the Cleft of the Rock
Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, Psalms 50 verse 15. Years ago, while working among the Laguna Indians, we were asked to speak at a little village called Pawait. It was in the days before automobiles, and we rode in large wagons drawn by horses for some 14 miles over rough roads until we reached this village. We had a meeting in the afternoon, and Indians from all about gathered. We started back at 4.30 or 5 o'clock because we were to have a meeting at Casablanca that night. We had not gone very far when we saw a terrible storm was about to break over us. Soon we could see that the rain was pouring down at a distance and driving rapidly toward us. I said, we are certainly going to get soaked. Our driver replied, I hope not. I think we can make the rock before the storm reaches us. There is a great rock ahead, and if we can make it, we will be sheltered. We hurried on and soon saw a vast rock rising right up from the plain, perhaps 40 or 50 feet in height, covering possibly an acre or more of ground. As we drew near, we saw a great cave in the rock. Instead of stopping to unhitch the horses, our driver drove right into the cave, and, in another minute or two, the storm broke over the rock in all its fury. While the storm raged outside, one of the Indians struck up, in the Laguna tongue, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, and we realized the meaning of the poet's words then as perhaps never before. A butterfly used to answer prayer. Is there anything too hard for me? Jeremiah 32 verse 27 An English evangelist, whom I have learned to know and love, Mr. H. P. Barker, tells an interesting story of a poor woman who was being pressed by a tradesman to pay an account which she knew she had already settled. In that case he demanded that she produce a receipt, quite certain she had received one she hunted and hunted, but was absolutely unable to find it. She went through piles of papers and letters, but to no avail, the receipt was not forthcoming. Finally the tradesman came to her again and made a very angry demand upon her for immediate payment. In her distress she turned to the Lord in earnest prayer, asking him to bring the receipt to light. Then in a moment or two, a butterfly flew into the room through an open window, and her little boy, eager to catch the beautiful creature, ran after it. The frightened insect flew over to the wall on one side and down behind a trunk. The boy in his eagerness to catch it, pushed out the trunk, and there, behind it on the floor lay the missing receipt. Snatching it up triumphantly, the poor widow showed it to the tradesman, who went away discomfited. As his own handwriting declared, the debt had been paid. Who can doubt but that he who notes the sparrow's fall and who would have us learn lessons from the ant and the coney and other small creatures, directed even the movements of a butterfly in order that he might answer his handmaiden's prayer? Only three weeks to live. He that believeth is not condemned. John 3 verse 18. A number of years ago, I was holding special meetings in the First Baptist Church of Los Gatos, California. On my first Sunday morning there, the text was, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4 verses 13 and 14. Sitting in the front pew was a young woman whose pale emaciated face and great, dark, hungry eyes attracted my attention. She listened so earnestly. After the meeting I said to the pastor, who was the very sickly but intensely beautiful girl who sat in the front pew. She is a very well-bred girl, he replied, but some years ago she threw Christianity to the winds. 
she was brought up in a Christian home. She went in for a worldly career, trying to find satisfaction and peace in the things of the world, but, within the last five months, she has been stricken with that dread disease of tuberculosis, and she has the kind that we call galloping consumption. She has not long to live, she is losing strength day after day, and the doctor says she will soon be gone, and now she is wretched and miserably unhappy. I prayed for her, and each night I would find myself looking through that audience, hoping she would be there, listening to the gospel, but I never saw her at another meeting. About three weeks later a lady came to me and said, Do you remember meeting Miss H? I remembered that it was this young lady, and she added, She is very ill, dying of tuberculosis. She heard you the first time you spoke, and was expecting to attend all the meetings, but she has been too ill. She has sent for you. I will be glad to go, was my reply. So we went to the room in which she sat. She excused herself for not standing to greet us, for she was too weak. I said, I am glad that you have sent for me. She looked up and said, Mr. Ironside, the doctor told me yesterday that I have just three weeks to live and I am not saved. I would like to know Christ. Do you think he will take a girl who rejected him, deliberately turned her back on him in health, now that I am bitterly disappointed, and everything I have counted on has gone by the board? Do you think there is any hope for a sinner like me? You know things look different when you realize you have only three weeks to live. Many a one, careless now, would be in dead earnest if he knew that within three weeks he would have to face God and eternity. Well, I said, I understand that you have had a very happy life in some respects, you have been very much sought after and admired by the world. Oh, please do not talk of that now, she said, I am afraid I have been selling my soul for worldly popularity. I thought I was going to find happiness and enjoyment, but now it gives me no peace, no satisfaction, to look back over those years of popularity, those years of worldly pleasure. Only three weeks and I must give an account to God, and I am not saved. It was a real joy to my own soul to open the word of God and show her how the blessed Lord Jesus in infinite grace had come all the way from heaven's fullest glory down to Calvary's deepest depths of woe for her redemption, and if she would put her heart trust in him and confess her guilt, she would have all the past blotted out directing her to John 3 verse 18, I read, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then I put the question to her, tell me, do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I do. Then I asked her, do you believe that God the Father sent him into this world to die for sinners? Yes, it is in the Bible, I do believe it, she replied. Do you believe he meant you when he said, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out? I asked. It is for everybody, isn't it, she said. Yes, I replied, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3 verse 16. Are you included in that whosoever? Yes, she said, I believe I am. Then tell me, I said, what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about you? Look at verse 18 again, notice there are only two classes of people there, the first class, he that believeth on him, and the second class, he that believeth not. Notice that there is something predicated of the first class and something of the second class. Of the first it is said, he that believeth is not condemned, and of the second, he that believeth not is condemned already. 
Now before I ask you to tell me which class you are in, let us bow in prayer. She could not kneel, but her friend and I knelt in prayer. We asked God by the Spirit to open His Word and bring it home in power to her soul. Read it again, I said. Do you see the two classes? Which one are you in? She was silent for a long time as we knelt there before God, and then she looked up, the tears glistening in her beautiful eyes, and she said, I am in the first class. How do you know? Because I do believe in him. It doesn't say he won't take me in because I come so late. I have come, and I do believe in him. And what is true of you? I asked. She looked at it again and whispered, not condemned. I said, is that enough to meet God on? She replied, that will do, not condemned. Three weeks from eternity, but resting upon the word of God. I saw her only twice again, and then my meetings ended. About five weeks later I met the Baptist preacher on the street, and he said, you remember Miss H? Do you know that just 21 days from the day you led her to Christ, I was called asterisk her bedside, and I found her just slipping away? Can you hear me? I asked. Yes, she said. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, she answered. And what does he say about you? I asked. Not condemned, and then she whispered, if you see Mr. Ironside, tell him it is all right. Oh, I tell you, dear friend, that was something real, because that young woman had the word of the living God to rest upon, but there are many who rest upon their own imaginations instead of renting on God's immutable word. Patriotism Plus Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, John 15 verse 13. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5 verse 10. When nations are engaged in deadly strife, it is common for patriots to declare that he who gives his life for defense of his country may be certain of a home in heaven because of having made the supreme sacrifice. This teaching is in accord with the principles of the Muslim religion and not with true Christianity. Muhammad promised his fanatical followers a place in paradise if they died for the faith in conflict with the infidels who rejected his teachings. Patriotism is a virtue of which any man may well be proud. Lies there a man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, This is my own, my native land? But patriotism, praiseworthy as it is from a human standpoint, will never fit the soul for the presence of God. It can never wash away the guilt of sin. The testimony of Edith Cavell, the brave British nurse who was killed by the Germans during the former World War, is well worth considering in this connection. This noble woman was born at Swardston, Norfolk, on December 4, 1865. She entered the London Hospital for nurses' training in 1895. In 1907 she was appointed first matron of the Birkendale Medical Institute at Brussels, Belgium. This became the Red Cross Hospital for Belgium at the outbreak of the conflict in 1914. From August of that year until August, 1915, Nurse Cavell helped to care for wounded French, Belgian, English and German soldiers alike. She ministered faithfully even to those who had fallen while fighting against her own nation. Naturally, her sympathies were with the Allies, and in cooperation with the efforts of Prince Reginald de Croix, she aided many derelict English and French soldiers who had fled from the Germans. 
These escaped by underground methods to the Dutch frontier, where, with the aid of guides, they were conveyed across to Britain. When some of these fugitives were traced to her house in Brussels, she was immediately arrested and after a court-martial was sentenced to face a firing squad. All her kindness to the German wounded was forgotten. Her captors considered her a spy and treated her accordingly. Just before the bandage was placed over her eyes, as she stood fearlessly facing the soldiers who were about to take her life, she gave a last message to the world. I am glad, she said, to die for my country. But as I stand here I realize as never before that patriotism is not enough. Then she went on to give a clear, definite testimony to her personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and her assurance of salvation, not through laying down her life for others, but because he laid down his life for her. In perfect composure, she submitted to the bandaging of her eyes and, in a few moments fell, pierced by many German bullets. Her words, patriotism is not enough, have spoken loudly to many in the years that have gone since she died a martyr to her convictions. Yet many forget this. What more is needed, you may ask? The answer is Christ. It is through faith in him alone that the soul is saved in heaven assured. Why the train was wrecked. It is the blood that mocketh an atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17 verse 11. Some years ago a fearful railroad wreck took a dreadful toll of life and limb in an eastern state. A train, loaded with young people returning from school, was stalled on a suburban track because of what is known as a hotbox. The Limited was soon due, but a flagman was sent back to warn the engineer in order to avert a rear-end collision. Thinking all was well, the crowd laughed and chatted while the train hands worked on in fancied security. Suddenly the whistle of the Limited was heard and on came the heavy train and crashed into the local, with horrible effect. The engineer of the Limited saved his own life by jumping and some days afterwards was hailed into court to account for his part in the calamity. And now a curious discrepancy in testimony occurred. He was asked, did you not see the flagman warning you to stop? He replied, I saw him, but he waved a yellow flag, and I took it for granted all was well, and so went on, though slowing down. The flagman was called, what flag did you wave? A red flag, but he went by me like a shot. Are you sure it was red? Absolutely. Both insisted on the correctness of their testimony, and it was demonstrated that neither was colorblind. Finally the man was asked to produce the flag itself as evidence. After some delay he was able to do so, and then the mystery was explained, it had been red, but it had been exposed to the weather so long that all the red was bleached out, and it was but a dirty yellow. Oh, the lives eternally wrecked by the yellow gospels of the day, the bloodless theories of unregenerate men that send their hearers to their doom instead of stopping them on their downward road. The Hen and the Lizard Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Proverbs 23 verses 31 and 32. Some time ago, a friend of mine, an evangelist, and his wife, living in Southern California, were watching a flock of chickens at feeding time, when they noticed one hand that seemed to be attempting to swallow a large lizard. She was fluttering wildly about and a lot of the other hens were cackling loudly as they gathered about her. 
Going over to see what was taking place, they found that while the hen had evidently pecked at the lizard, the slimy, twisting creature had turned about and had the hen by the throat and would have choked her to death had not my friends intervened. How like that lizard is the alcoholic cup? One begins to toy with cocktails or other spiritous liquors, only to find that at the last the drink habit becomes so strong it masters the one who thought he could drink or let it alone as he pleased. Can any folly be greater than that of deliberately starting something which one knows he may have no power to stop, and yet he is fully aware that the matter in question may mean his moral, physical, and spiritual ruin? Yet how many there are who think it an evidence of weakness to refuse to touch alcoholic beverages and consider it a mark of good fellowship and even manliness to drink with the crowd and so win the approval of careless worldlings who have no fear of God or of consequences in their hearts? These glory in leading others to follow their evil example and are never better pleased than when they can point to some poor, foolish youth who has begun to tread the downward path at their behest. Recognizing the fact that nothing that is physically harmful can ever be morally right, consecrated, Christian young manhood and young womanhood must stand firmly against all such wickedness. Lippen to Jesus He that believeth on me hath everlasting life, John 6 verse 47. Being of Scotch extraction, I always greatly enjoy the broad Scotch translation of the New Testament. In that you will never find our English word, believe, but you will find the word lippen. For instance, John 3 verse 16 reads, For God is a loved the world as to G.I.E. his son, the only begotten name, that Ilka Ainwa lippens till him sudden a d, but hey life for I. What does that word mean, the word lippen? It just means to trust your whole weight on a thing, trust it implicitly. A Scotch minister was visiting a poor woman who was in great distress about her soul. She just could not seem to understand. By and by he left her, and on his way back to the manse he was troubled to think he had not been able to help her. He came to a bridge over a burn in front of the house, which he started to cross, going step by step very carefully with his buckthorn cane. An old Scotch woman called out, Why, doctor man, can ye no lip in the brig? He laughed and waved his hand, and said to himself, I have the word for my old lady. So he went back to the cottage. She opened the door and said, Oh doctor, you've come back again? He said, I have the word for you now. What is it, doctor? Can you no lippen to Jesus? Oh, is it just to lippen to him? Why, surely I can lippen to him. He will never let me doon, will he? bowed together, and she settled it. That is all God asks you to do. Believe the record he has given concerning Jesus, put your heart's trust in him. You may be assured that you have life eternal free that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know not merely hope, not just have a reasonable assurance, but full assurance that ye have eternal life. Open the door to Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if any man hear my voice, and open the door, I will come into him, and will sup with him, and he with me, Revelation 3 verse 20. An old woman was in great distress, because of deep poverty. She was living in a little garret in London, England, and was dreadfully afraid the landlord and the bailiff would come to dispossess her, and perhaps, sell her bed from under her because of her debt. It happened that a certain Christian minister heard of her need and by interesting some friends raised sufficient money to go to her creditor and pay everything. Then, with the receipt in his hand, he went to see her. 
Her neighbors knew her only by the name, Old Betty. When the clergyman arrived at the house, he said, Can you tell me where Old Betty lives? They told him to go up the stairs to a certain room. He went up, knocked at the door and waited, but there was no answer. He knocked again and still there was no answer. He called, Old Betty, are you there, but no answer. He started down the stairs and was going away when the neighbors said, Did you find her? No, she is evidently not in. Oh, she's in all right, she just wasn't going to let you in, they said. She's afraid to open the door. And so he went up again and knocked and then one of the neighbors called, Old Betty, let him in, it's the clergyman come to see you. Oh, the voice came from within, I thought it was the bailiff and I wasn't going to open, and she opened the door and received the minister. He said, I have come to tell you that some friends have heard of your need and have paid all your debt. They have asked me to bring you the receipt, and here is a little gift to help for the future. Just to think, she said, and I locked and bolted the door against you. I was afraid to let you in. Is that not the way people are treating the Lord Jesus Christ? I am wondering whether you, unsaved one, have been treating him like that. For years he has been knocking at your heart's door, he wants to come in to bring you peace and joy with the knowledge of sins atoned for and guilt put away, but you have bolted and barred your heart's door against him, you have kept your best friend out but he is waiting still and continues to knock. Why not open your heart's door at once and receive the salvation so freely proffered? Who can pay? When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both, Luke 7 verse 42. Years ago, Nicholas, the first, Tsar of Russia, was occasionally in the habit of throwing aside the garb of royalty, attiring himself in the uniform of a lower officer, and going about to find out how things were going with his soldiers. On one occasion he had a favorite, a young man, the son of an intimate friend of his, to whom he had given a position in a border fortress in charge of the money used for paying off the soldiers. This young man fell into bad habits, he took to gambling, and by and by, led on and on by the will-o'-the-wisp that lures the gambler to his doom, had gambled away all his own wealth and then had taken from the government funds entrusted to him. He had taken just a few rubles at a time and had no idea of the amount abstracted. He received notice that on the following day, an official was coming from the court to examine the records and to count the money he had on hand. He felt he never could face the exposure of that day and so the night before, closed his door and sat there with his books before him. He opened the safe, took out the pitifully small amount of money, counted it carefully, jotted down the amount on a sheet of paper, made note of the various speculations that he had abstracted, and when he had added it, he sat looking at it and finally wrote under the figures, a great debt, who can pay? He knew it was impossible for him ever to settle, looking at the small amount of money, he thought, what a failure I have been. He made up his mind that he would not live to face the disgrace of the morrow, he would blow his brains out as the clock struck twelve that night and leave all the papers so that the agent would understand all that had happened. As he sat there reflecting upon the way he had thrown away his opportunity, suddenly he felt himself overpowered with drowsiness and in spite of the horror of his situation, went off to sleep. It so happened that night, the Tsar Nicholas, attired as a lower officer of the guard, entered the gate of that fortress by giving the proper password and moved down through the halls. Every light should have been out according to regulations but as he came down the main hall, he saw the light shining under a door. He went up to the door and listened, but there was not a sound. 
He tried the knob, the door opened, he looked inside and saw the sleeping officer and then the money and the open safe, the papers, the books, and he wondered what it meant. He tiptoed in and stood behind the man, and looking over his shoulder, read the paper before him. The whole thing became clear in a moment. The young man had been stealing systematically for months. The Tsar's first thought was to put his hand on his shoulder and tell him that he was under arrest. The next moment his heart went out to him in compassion, he remembered his boyhood, he remembered the father, how broken-hearted he would be if the son should be arrested. Then he happened to see that pitiful question, a great debt, who can pay? Moved by generous impulse, he reached over, picked up the pen that had fallen from the hand of the sleeping man, wrote just one word under that line, tiptoed out, and closed the door. For an hour or so the man slept, then, wakened suddenly, he saw it was long past midnight. He sprang to his feet and picked up his revolver, put it to his forehead, and was just about to pull the trigger when his eye caught sight of that one word on the sheet of paper which he knew was not there when he went to sleep. It was the name, Nicholas. Dropping his gun, he said, can it be? He went to one of his files and got hold of some documents that had the genuine signature of the Tsar and compared them with the one word written under the line, a great debt, who can pay? It was the real signature of the Tsar and he said, the Tsar has been here tonight, he knows all my guilt and yet he has undertaken to pay my debt, I need not die. And so instead of taking his life, he rested upon the word of the Tsar as indicated by that name written upon the paper, and he was not surprised when, early the next morning, a messenger came from the royal palace bringing a sack of gold which he counted and found to be exactly the amount of the missing money. He placed it in the safe and when the inspector came and went over the books, everything was found to be all right. Nicholas had paid in full. It is only a human illustration but it pictures what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Jesus paid all my debt. Oh, wondrous love! Widest extreme he met. Oh, wondrous love! Justice is satisfied. God now is glorified. Heaven's gate thrown open wide. Oh, wondrous love! One word spoke peace to that man's heart, Nicholas. One word has spoken peace to my heart, the name, Jesus. For through him and his work upon the cross satisfaction has been made for all my sins. And for you, there is the same salvation, the same absolution, the same pardon, the same forgiveness, for God hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 A good sinner There is no difference, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verses 22 and 23 Are you saved, sir? We asked a gentleman at the close of a gospel meeting. No, I really can't say I am, but I would like to be. Why would you? Do you realize you are a lost sinner? Oh, of course, we are all sinners. Ah! But that often means little or nothing. Are you a sinner yourself? Well, I suppose I am, but I'm not what you could call a bad sinner. I am, I think, rather a good one. I always try to do the best I know. Then, my friend, I fear there is little use seeking to show you the way of salvation. 
Good sinners, together with honest liars, upright thieves, and virtuous scoundrels are far from being ready to submit to the grace of God, which is only for poor, vile, hell-deserving sinners who have no merits to build on, no goodness to plead, but who are ready to be saved alone by the work of another, and that one the Lord Jesus Christ. Further conversation but elicited the fact that the gentleman was far from being ready to be saved and would, according to his own declaration, rather take his chances as he was. The Human Fly They weave the spider's web, neither shall they cover themselves with their works, Isaiah 59 verses 5 and 6. Some years ago there came to Los Angeles, the great metropolis of Southern California, a so-called human fly. It was announced that on a given day he would climb up the face of one of the large department store buildings, and long before the appointed time, thousands of eager spectators were gathered to see him perform the seemingly impossible feat. But slowly and carefully he mounted aloft, now clinging to a window ledge, anon to a jutting brick, again to a cornice. Up and up he went, against apparently insurmountable difficulties. At last, he was nearing the top. He was seen to feel the right and left and above his head for something firm enough to support his weight, to carry him further. And soon he seemed to spy what looked like a gray bit of stone or discolored brick protruding from the smooth wall. He reached for it, but it was just beyond him. He ventured all on a spring-like movement, grasped the protuberance and, before the horrified eyes of the spectators, fell to the ground and was broken to pieces. In his dead hand was found a spider's web. What he evidently mistook for solid stone or brick turned out to be nothing but dried froth. Alas, how many are thinking to climb to heaven by effort of their own, only to find at last that they have ventured all on a spider's web, and so are lost forever. I'm in for a good time. She that liveth in pleasure is dead, while she liveth, 1 Timothy 5 verse 6. Some years ago, I had been preaching Christ as God's remedy for man's ruined condition, to the hardy population of a beautiful mining town in the mountain regions of Northern California. One afternoon I noticed in the meeting hall a young woman whose sin-marked face, weary look and careless demeanor could not fail to attract attention. Stepping over to her at the close, I asked, What about your soul? Have you ever thought of preparing for eternity? My soul, I ain't got none, was the flippant reply, accompanied by a foolish laugh. Further conversation seemed to make no impression, for, after solemnly warning her of coming judgment, she exclaimed, You ain't going to scare me into religion. Wouldn't I look nice joining you folks? I'm in for a good time. But when you've had your day, when your so-called good time is over forever, when death, judgment, and eternity have to be faced, when God has to be met, what then? Oh, well, of course, I don't intend to live like this right along. I'll get religion when I grow old. I ain't got time for it now. Yes, so the devil has deceived thousands, but you may never live to grow old. You may not have time to prepare for eternity, though you must find time to die. Another laugh greeted this warning, and she was gone. It seemed almost impossible that so young a person could be so hardened. I was told she had abandoned herself to a grossly wicked life, though little more than a child, and was an outcast from respectable society. Alas, how sin degrades, hardens, and blinds its poor victims. Some weeks after the above conversation, an undertaker came to the house where I was staying, he said that he had a funeral to conduct that was a source of much embarrassment to him. 
The person to be buried was a young woman of so notorious a character that he could scarcely persuade anyone to act as pallbearers. Mentioning her name, he asked if we knew any who might do her this last service. We promptly offered ourselves. That would do. Some former companions of her folly had already promised to be the others. It was the girl I had so recently spoken to, cut down in a moment, suddenly destroyed, and that without remedy. Two days earlier, after a public holiday spent in a revolting manner, she was borne home drunk and put into a bed, from which she never arose. In a few hours she had passed into eternity, having died in great agony from the baneful effects of her long debauch. The wine cup and its accompaniments had claimed another victim. Awful was the sight of her pale, swollen face. A minister had been called in, but what could he say? What comfort could he give? Of deathbed repentance even he could not speak. No hope could he hold out that she might after all be saved. She had been asked by her mother if she wanted someone to come in to pray with her. No, she said, no one. Couldn't she remember a prayer, then, to say herself, the Lord's Prayer, or any other? No, I can't, and instead of prayer there were oaths and groans of anguish. She had lived her life, the minister said, I shall not speak of it, for it cannot be altered now. You have yours to live yet. I speak then to you, and he faithfully urged them to flee to Christ alone for refuge. As I helped to lower the coffin into the grave, my heart was sad indeed. As I turned away, I heard someone exclaim, under his breath, just think of it, only seventeen years old, and gone to. The last word was lost in the noise about me, or perhaps never uttered. Not only necessary, but enough. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6. In a hospital ward a lady missionary found an undersized and undeveloped little Irish boy, whose white, wizened face and emaciated form excited her deepest sympathy. Perhaps he was of about fifteen years of age, he scarcely looked to be twelve. Winning the lad's confidence by gifts and flowers and fruit, she soon found him very willing, and even eager, to listen to the story of the sinner's savior. At first his interest seemed of an impersonal character, but gradually he began to be immediately concerned. His own soul's need was put before him, and he was awakened to some sense of his lost condition, insomuch that he commenced seriously to consider how he might be saved. Brought up a Romanist, he thought and spoke of penance and confessional, of sacraments and church, yet never wholly leaving out Christ Jesus and his atoning work. One morning the lady called again upon him, and found his face aglow with a newfound joy. Inquiring the reason, he replied with assurance born of faith in the revealed word of God, O oh, Mrs., I always knew that Jesus was necessary, but I never knew till yesterday that he was enough. It was a blessed discovery, and I would that every reader of these pages had made it. Mark it well, Jesus is enough. Who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption? Ye are complete in him. God hath made us accepted in the Beloved. These are only a few of the precious declarations of Scripture which show clearly that Jesus is indeed not only necessary, but enough. It is believed by most people that Jesus is necessary. The whole fabric of Christendom is built upon that. But, alas, how few realize that he is enough. You see, it is not Christ and good works, nor Christ and the Church, that save. 
It is not through Christ and baptism, or Christ and the confessional, that we may obtain the forgiveness of our sins. It is not Christ and doing our best, or Christ and the Lord's Supper, that will give us new life. It is Christ alone. Christ and is a perverted gospel which is not the gospel. Christ without thee and is the sinner's hope and the saint's confidence. Trusting him, eternal life and forgiveness are yours. Then, and not till then, good works and obedience to all that is written in the word for the guidance of Christians, falls into place. The saved soul is exhorted to maintain good works, and thus to manifest his love for Christ. But for salvation itself, Jesus is not only necessary, but he is enough. The One Mediator To which of the saints wilt thou turn? Job 5 verse 1 my mother spent her last months on earth at Long Beach, California. My wife and I arranged to be with her so as to help in any way we could. Each afternoon I was in the habit of going down to the sands for a little rest and relaxation, and I always took my Bible with me. While reading it one day, a young couple approached and, after introducing themselves, began to ask some questions about certain scriptures. This led to a daily Bible study right on the beach. Eventually scores of people would gather with their Bibles and it was a joy to seek to open up the Word to them. For some weeks we studied the Epistle to the Hebrews. One day, as the meeting was closing, a warm-hearted Irish woman, who had been sitting on the outskirts of the crowd, came over to me and expressed her appreciation of the message. She exclaimed, I am a Roman Catholic and this is the first Protestant conventicle I have ever attended. I've seen ye each day as I went by but I did not think I ought to listen, but as I was passing this afternoon I heard you say something so good about my dear Lord Jesus that I felt it would not be wrong to hear more, so I came close and I have enjoyed it all. You've told me things about my dear Savior today I never heard in all my life before, and I am so glad I came. I inquired, you know Jesus as your own Savior and Lord? Indeed I do, was the reply. He's been my friend for years, and since my husband died he's been like a husband to me, and a father to my children. I go to him about everything and he always answers my prayers and takes care of me. He died for me and I trust him to keep my soul. Perhaps a bit mischievously, I asked, but do you only pray to him? Don't you pray also to the Blessed Virgin and to the saints when you are in trouble? I shall never forget her answer. Oh, be dad, she exclaimed. What would I be after bothering with the Virgin and the Saints for, when I can go direct to my blessed Lord Himself? Would that all might realize the blessedness of this. Because He ever liveth, we are invited to come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and find grace in every time of need. The Lord Jesus is interested in all that concerns us. Why then turn aside to any other? The Unsettled Past God requireth that which is past, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 15. A solemn instance of the danger of neglecting salvation came to my notice some time ago. It is absolutely authentic. An earnest evangelist, a personal friend of mine, was holding a series of meetings in a city in western Michigan. One night his text was Ecclesiastes 3 verse 15. Faithfully, he sought to show his hearers the impossibility of putting themselves right with God by reformation or human merit. Let the future be as it might, the past would have to be faced at the great white throne. Sin must be atoned for, and the guilty one could never atone for his own iniquity. 
He went on to show that God, in grace, had given Jesus to die, that his precious blood was shed to put away sins, that all who trusted him could say, I have settled with God about my past now, for Jesus died for me. My sins are gone. He paid my debt. God requireth that which is past, but he has required it of Jesus, and my soul is set free. In the audience sat a lady who listened with deepest interest. The day after the meeting she expressed herself as being concerned and anxious about her soul, but like many others, she procrastinated, and, instead of settling the matter at once, she chose to go on unsaved. The next day she was drawing some gasoline for a customer in the little store where she worked. A lamp was near. Suddenly there was an explosion and then a massive flame. She ran from the place, screaming for help. Neighbors came to her rescue, but it was too late to save her life. Conveyed to a hospital, she lingered some 24 hours and then passed into eternity. As she lay in the ward, she was heard wailing hour after hour, My sins! My sins! I haven't settled with God about my past. Christian friends were there to point her to Jesus, who even now would save her if she accepted him, but her agony was so great, none could tell whether she looked to him or not. While hoping she had a saving glimpse of the one who died to redeem her, her loved ones could only leave her with God. The incident illustrates the grave danger of refusing to close at once with Christ. Have you settled with God about your past? Are Yom's sins washed away in his precious blood? If called as suddenly as she to face eternity, would your cry perhaps be as hopeless as hers? Oh, be persuaded, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The loss of your soul is too terrible to be unconcerned. To lose your wealth is much. To lose your health is more. To lose your soul is such a loss. As no one can restore. Come now to Jesus with all your sins, and owning your lost condition, trust in him, while grace is free. He, that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy, Proverbs 29 verse 1. The Conversion of Thomas Scott, a Unitarian That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him, John 5 verse 23. It is related of the eminent commentator of the 18th century, Thomas Scott, that he was for some years opposed to the precious and important truth of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like most Unitarians, the lower his thoughts were as to the Son of God, the higher they were as to himself and his own righteousness. A proud Pharisee, he fancied that he was quite able to save himself, if indeed he needed saving at all. Through a careful, thoughtful study of the Scriptures, afterwards his food for forty years, he was awakened to see his lost condition and his deep need of a Savior and Mediator. Relating his experience in the force of truth, he says, I clearly perceived my very best duties, on which my main dependence had hitherto been placed, to be merely specious sins, and my whole life appeared to be one continued series of transgressions. I now understood the Apostle's meaning when he affirms that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified before God, Galatians 2 verse 16. Thus aroused, he saw that none but a divine Savior could avail for so great a sinner as he now realized himself to be, and so, trusting in the Lord Jesus, he found peace and joy. Unitarianism, like so-called Christian science, theosophy, and various other human religions, will do well enough for a man with a drugged or sleeping conscience, 
but the gospel of the grace of God alone can meet the need of an awakened sinner who has learned that God is holy and cannot look upon iniquity. To such there is a sweetness and healing balm in such words as John 3 verse 16, of which the other knows nothing. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No oil in the lamp. They that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them, Matt, 25,3. Nothing is sadder than profession without possession, nothing more solemn than to have a name that one lives, while actually dead in trespasses and sins. Many are like this, they have no sense of their true condition. The following case came to my notice while I was preaching in a Middle Western city some time ago. The lady related it to me herself. She had been for years a professor of religion, attending services frequently, reading her Bible with some degree of regularity, saying her prayers and attending to what she thought were her duties as one who belonged to a respectable church. In short, she was doing all she knew how in order to prepare her soul for eternity. But, while she hoped she was all right, she was never very seriously concerned for her conscience had not yet been reached and so, as she put it afterwards, she was contentedly hastening on to judgment, relying upon her own fancied goodness and meritorious works for salvation. She was alone in her room one night when suddenly the lamp which had lighted went out, leaving her in the darkness. Almost involuntarily she exclaimed, There is no oil in the lamp. The words were scarcely uttered till they seemed to come reverberating back into her ears, but with a new and solemn meaning. No oil in the lamp. I've heard that before. Ah, yes, the parable of the virgins, Matt 25 1-12. Five of them had no oil in their lamps when the bridegroom came, and they were shut out of the feast. Her mind became troubled. For several days, and even nights, the thought was ever with her. She would often cry out in anguish of soul, No, I have no oil in my lamp. What will become of me? I have not the grace of God in my heart. A horror of great darkness came upon her. She longed to be saved, yet knew not how. In great distress she began to pray, and God opened her eyes to see her utterly lost, undone condition in his sight, and showed her that she could do nothing to save herself. She searched his word for light as to how she might obtain the long for oil, and at last was led to realize that the work that saves had all been finished long ago when the Lord Jesus bore her sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2 verse 24, that all she had to do to possess eternal life and to backslash now that she had it, was to believe on him, 1 John 5 verse 13. Glad she was indeed to be saved so simply, and yet in a way that brought such satisfaction. Sin had been all judged on another, and she was justified from all things, Acts 13 verses 38 and 39. In simple faith she rested in Christ, and can now rejoice that she is His for time and eternity. Before she had profession, now she had Christ, before she was dressed in the rags of self-righteousness, now she was clothed in the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 before she had an empty lamp only, now she was the possessor of the oil of the Spirit, who has sealed her for heaven, Ephesians 4 verse 30. Praying or Trusting As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Visiting in a hospital not long ago, I spoke to a poor man of emaciated aspect, whom his friends had been anxious that I should see. He was evidently in a very precarious condition, possibly soon to be summoned from time to eternity. 
I told him I was anxious to know how he stood as to the great matter of his soul's salvation, and asked if he enjoyed peace with God. Oh, was the reply, I'm all right as to that. I'm praying all the time. And a look of intense self-satisfaction settled on his face. Well, my dear fellow, I hope you know what Christ had to do to save such sinners as we are and that you know him as your personal Savior. Oh, that's all right. I've known about Jesus for a long time. I'd belonged to a church since I was a boy. I haven't any fear for I'm always praying. Well, you see, it is not enough to know about these things, and people are not saved by praying. Do you trust in the precious blood of Christ? A violent attack of coughing interrupted the conversatian. When he was easy again, he said, I can't talk more to you, sir. It excites me too much. But you needn't fear for me, for I won't forget to pray. With this he turned from me, evidently signifying that the conversation was over, so I could do nothing but retire, leaving on the table some simple gospel tracts in the hope that, as he could still read, they might be used of God for blessing to him. His case is, I fear, like that of many who put prayer, or other Christian practices, in the place of Christ, whereas the truth is, Christ first, then all these other things, or, in other words, life first, then the needs of the newborn babe. Saved people are surely praying people, but there are thousands of persons who pray who are not saved. The Pharisees prayed even long prayers, yet they were not saved. Nowhere in his word does God ask people to pray for salvation. Nowhere is eternal life promised in answer to prayer. People in recognized relationship with God are taught to pray, as children making known their wants to a loving father. In the case of the one apparent exception, Simon the sorcerer of Acts 8, to whom Peter says, Pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, via 22, it is that of a man by profession already a Christian. His own answer to the apostle is the proof that the secrets of his heart had been made manifest, and thus of his unfitness to pray, for he exclaims, Pray ye to the Lord for me, via 24. Sinners desiring salvation are throughout Scripture urged to trust, to believe, to have faith in the Son of God. Paul's answer to the jailer's anxious inquiry, What must I do to be saved, is not that he should pray, or beseech God to help him, but is clear and simple, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God has not one plan for one class of sinners and a different one for another. All who ever were saved in any dispensation were saved by believing the testimony of God. His present testimony is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and rose again, and he says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10 verse 9. We are not saying these things to hinder any soul in distress from crying to God, as the publican who cried, God be merciful to me a sinner. But we warn any soul from putting his confidence in anything which, in the end, would only fail him and what an awful thing to fail in a matter whose issues are eternal. God be merciful to me a sinner is the acknowledgement of need and guilt, but cannot give peace. The publican might have cried that forever and still have not so much as dared lift up his eyes to heaven had he not believed God's word. The moment the testimony of God is believed, that Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3 verse 18, the soul enters into peace with God. Instead of calling upon us to pray for salvation, God himself is beseeching men through his ambassadors to be reconciled to him. Through them Christ is pleading with sinners to trust him. Precious then to be able to say, 
I am trusting all the time instead of what this poor man in the hospital was vainly repeating. Living the Christ Life Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, Galatians 2 verse 20. I was holding a series of evangelistic meetings in a church in Virginia. One evening, a visiting minister was asked to open with prayer. He said, Lord, grant thy blessing as the word is preached tonight. May it be the means of causing people to fall in love with the Christ life, that they may begin to live the Christ life. I felt like saying, Brother, sit down, don't insult God like that. But I felt I had to be courteous and I knew that my turn would come when I could set forth the precious truth as to God's way of salvation. The gospel is not asking men to try to live the Christ life. If our salvation depended upon our doing that, apart from a second birth, we would all be just as good as check through to hell. It is impossible for an unregenerate man to live the Christ life, no matter how much he may admire it as seen in Jesus, as it would be for one who had no sense of tune or of rhythm to live the Paderewski life or the life of any other great musician. One may enjoy music and admire musical ability who could never play or sing himself. It takes the soul of a musician to enable one to live a musician's life, just as it takes the eye and hand of an artist to be a painter or a sculptor. When born from above, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith and as he lives out his life in us we are enabled to walk as he walked. There is no other way whereby we may live the Christ life. Honest Doubt If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, 1 John 5 verse 9. Often when pressing the claims of Christ upon men and urging them to believe the gospel, I have had them seek to parry by declaring that they could not believe, as they were honest doubters. I suppose there is such a thing as an honest doubter, but I dislike the expression when that which men profess honestly to doubt is the infallible word of the living God. Tennyson has written. There is more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half your creeds. I am not so sure that Tennyson was correct, certainly not if it is a question of doubting the truth of the gospel. I would not like to go home and tell my wife something and have her say, well, my dear, I am trying to believe you, but, honestly, I doubt you. I believe there is more faith in honest doubt than in being too sure you are not trying to put one over on me. A lady said when I had explained the way of life as clearly as I knew how and shown her some plain, definite passages from the Holy Scriptures, such as John 5 verse 24 and Matthew 11 verse 28, well, I am trying to believe. Trying to believe whom? I inquired. It is God who has spoken in His Word. What do you mean by saying you are trying to believe Him? She saw her sin and her mistake and exclaimed, Oh, I did not realize what I was saying. Yes, I can and I do believe what God has declared. And her soul entered into peace. The blood counts for something. The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin, 1 John 1 verse 7. A friend of mine, himself an evangelist, lay for many weary months in a Roman Catholic hospital in the city of Oakland, California, because of injuries received in an automobile accident. On a nearby bed lay a young priest, evidently a sincere and earnest man, but he was greatly troubled in view of possible death. An aged priest came from time to time to hear his confessions and to grant him absolution. My friend longed to speak to him, but found him very difficult to approach. 
day, however, as the older priest was about to leave, he overheard the young one say to him, something like this, Father, it is very strange, I have done everything I know to do. I have sought to carry out all that the church has asked, and yet I have no peace. How can I be sure that God has put away my sins? The other looked at him compassionately, and then exclaimed, Surely the blood of Christ ought to count for something. As though a flash of divine light had entered his soul, the young priest's countenance changed. He looked up eagerly to exclaim, Ah, yes, it counts for everything. I can trust that. And it was evident afterwards that his soul had entered into peace. Can you trust the precious blood shed by that holy son, who drank the cup of judgment for your sins upon the cross? If so, God declares that your sins, which are many, are all forgiven. Thus, redeemed to God and justified, you will enter, as never before, into the inner meaning of the garden and the cross. Gethsemane, can I forget? Or there thy conflict see? Thine agony and blood like sweat. And not remember thee? When to the cross I turn mine eyes. And rest on Calvary. O Lamb of God, my sacrifice. I must remember thee. The wrong door. I am the door, by me if any man enter in, he shall be saved. John 10 verse 9. A young man who often listened to a great Scotch preacher wanted to be saved. He had a longing in his heart to know Christ as his deliverer and to know the blessedness of God's salvation, although he wept and prayed and sought, he could get no sense of forgiveness, no assurance that he was received by God. One night the minister preached on those words, I am the door, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he showed that any man took in poor sinners, no matter how vile, how wicked, how corrupt they were. As he preached, he could see the cloud lift from this young man's face, at the close of the meeting, he came to the front and said, I got in tonight. What do you mean, asked the preacher. Why, I got in at the open door tonight while you were preaching. I am glad to hear it. But why did you not get in before? You have been troubled for a fortnight and I have been trying to help you, and others have been doing their best to help you. How was it that you did not get in until tonight? Well, said the young man, I have been at the wrong door all the time. I have been knocking at the saint's door and I found it locked against me. I thought I had to become good enough for God to save me, but I said tonight, I will try the sinner's door, and when I came to it, it was open and I got right inside. Salvation Altogether of God Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1 verse 12. There is a story told of an old man who owned a little narrow lot with a poor miserable cabin on it. Lots in his neighborhood had been selling for fabulous prices and he felt that someday his place would make his fortune. By and by a millionaire came along and seeing the possibilities of that block, said, I want the whole thing. He sent his agent to buy the whole block, when he came to the old man, he said, what is the price of your place? As the old man had waited long for this opportunity, he priced it at what he thought was a tremendously big figure. Very well, said the agent, I will take it. When do you want it? the old man asked. In about two weeks I will be around with the deed and you can be ready to sign it. Here is a thousand dollars to bind the sale, replied the agent. The old man was simply delighted and thought, well, if somebody has bought this place who was able to pay all that money, I ought to fix it up a bit. 
and so he bought some paint and went to work painting the old cabin. He bought some blast to replace the broken panes, and for two weeks he worked on the cabin. When this millionaire purchaser and his agent brought the papers for him to sign, he was so nervous about it he could hardly hold the pen. He was surprised that the purchaser did not say anything about the shack and so he said, you see how beautifully I have painted it up and have put in some new windows. It is going to make a nice place. I hope you will be very comfortable in it. Oh, said the millionaire, but I didn't buy this place for what is on it, but for what I am going to put on it. That is how God justifies the ungodly. It is not because of what he finds in men, but he saves them for what he is going to put in them, for what he is going to do for them. When they put their trust in him, they get everlasting life, they are justified, and all their sins are forgiven. Then God proceeds to make them fit for his own blessed presence, and when we get home to heaven, we will give him all the glory. The Bible A Mirror If any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was, James 1 verses 23 and 24. I ran across an illustration the other day that I think pictures this admirably. An elderly gentleman, who was very nearsighted, prided himself on his ability as an art critic. On one occasion he was accompanying some friends through a large gallery and was seeking to display his real or fancied knowledge of pictures to these friends. He had left his glasses at home and was not able to see things very clearly. Standing before a large frame, he began to point out the inartistic features of the picture there revealed. The frame, he said, is altogether out of keeping with the subject and as for the subject itself, it was that of a man, it is altogether too homely, in fact, too ugly, ever to make a good picture. It is a great mistake for any artist to choose so homely a subject for a picture if he expects it to be a masterpiece. The old gentleman was going on like this when his wife managed to get near enough to interrupt. She exclaimed, My dear, you are looking into a mirror. He was quite taken back to realize that he had been criticizing his own face. Now the word of God is such a mirror. It does not hide our deformities. It shows us up just as we are. But we are not to be occupied with our old selves. The Spirit of God would turn us away from self altogether to occupation with the risen Christ, and as we are taken up with Him, we are kept from sin. It is when we get our eyes off Christ and become self-occupied or taken up with the world around us that we fail. And who of us does not so fail? We all have to confess our failures from day to day, but our ever-living Savior is not only our High Priest to minister all needed grace and help, but even when we fail to avail ourselves of that as we should, He is our Advocate still and the moment we fail, He takes up our case with the Father. Mark, it does not say, if any man confess his sin, we have an advocate, but rather, if any man sin, we have an advocate. The moment we fail he is in the Father's presence about us, and as a result of his gracious advocacy, the Spirit continues his work in our hearts, bringing us to repentance and confession, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Righteousness of God and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, Phil 3 9. I was talking to a large group at a college one day and an illustration came to my mind which I think all the coets understood. I said, just imagine one of you girls working your way through college.
You have very little with which to do, your parents are not able to provide for you, possibly you have no parents. There is going to be some great affair and all are supposed to be nicely dressed for this occasion, you do not like to be shabby, but you have so little to go on. Then you see that at the 5 and 10 cent store there is a splendid sale on dress material for 10 cents a yard. You have only a few dimes, but you go down and get a few yards and try to make a nice little gown so that you can go to that function. But you have never had much training as a seamstress and you have a lot of trouble. However, you work away on it, trying to make it look respectable. Then one day Lady Bountiful visits you, you have always dreamed about her, but never expected to see her. She takes a kindly interest in you and says, look, I want you to go downtown with me. You go, wondering why she should be interested in you, and then she takes you into one of the most beautiful outfitting establishments of the city. You are stirred as you walk up and down those aisles, as she stops at the dress section, she says, now, my dear, pick out any dress you please, a gown for yourself, anyone that you like. Well, really, you say, that seems too good to be true. I am afraid my taste would lead me to pick out something too expensive. But she says, go right on anything you want. And so your fancy for color leads you to select a certain one and you say, well, I think that would be very becoming. All right, she says, and to the saleslady, how much is it? The answer is $75. Oh, you say, that price is altogether beyond a poor girl like me. But that is all right, she says, you like it and you are going to have it. Imagine the girl coming back to her little room, seeing the poor old figured goods at which she had been working so long. She gets the new one out and tries it on and parades up and down before the glass. Finally, she calls in the other girls and says, Oh, now I shall be found not having my own dress, this poor inexpensive thing, but this beautiful gown that has been given to me so freely. Paul looked at it that way. He had been trying to work out his righteousness himself, trying to make a beautiful garment in which to stand before God, but when he got sight of the risen Christ and learned that every believer is made the righteousness of God in Christ, he said, Away with that thing of my own providing, now that I can be dressed up in the righteousness which is of God in Christ. Total Depravity The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately, incurably, wicked, Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Many object to the doctrine of total depravity on the ground that all men are capable of some good even if unsaved. All of us recognize the value of decency in behavior, of a kindly spirit, of generosity in caring for the needy, and similar virtues, which are frequently seen in unconverted and even positively godless men and women. How, then, it is asked, can they be said to be totally depraved? Dr. Joseph Cook, the great Boston lecturer of the latter half of the 19th century, answers this question with the following illustration. He said he had in his home a very beautiful and valuable clock. It had an exceedingly handsome case, a very fine set of works, a nice-appearing dial and elegantly finished hands. It was altogether a good clock to look upon but it had one fault. It simply would not, or could not, keep time. It had been gone over by many different clockmakers, but no one had been able to correct this fault. As a timepiece it was totally depraved. Is not this like man, even at his best, if he has not been born again? There may be much about him that others can admire, but he is positively unable to do the will of the Lord, because his heart is utterly estranged from God, and therefore so far as holiness is concerned, he is totally depraved.
Only the new birth regeneration by the Word and Spirit of God can enable him to keep in line with the divine will as laid down in the Holy Scriptures. However righteous he may appear in the eyes of his fellows, because of this fatal defect all his righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. The Fullness of the Scriptures The barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah, 1 Kings 17 verse 16. In this, the barrel and the cruise were like the word of God itself, whether we think of the scriptures as a whole or any separate passage or text. No matter how often we may have read it, nor how many sermons we may have heard upon it, there is always more to be discovered, as we ponder it anew under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Evangelist Gibbard, the New York missioner of some fifty years ago, used to like to tell of the uncouth lad who attended a school in the Lower East Side district of that great metropolis. He was very fond of his teacher because of the kindly interest she had taken in him. One day he approached her desk, after school was in session, holding out a very dilapidated-looking orange in his dirty, grimy, little hand. Here, teacher, he said, is an orange I've brought here. It's been scuzzed some, but there's lots in it yet. So it is with every portion of the Bible. No one has been able to exhaust the priceless treasure it contains. There is always more to be obtained from it for the refreshment of the soul. Simplicity in Prayer Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, Phil 4, 6, 7. We need to realize that our God takes a fatherly interest in every detail of our lives and bids us bring everything to Him in prayer. Nothing is too small for His concern and nothing is too great for His power. Years ago, the Free Kirk of Scotland was holding a synodical meeting in the granite city of Aberdeen and worshippers were flocking in from all nearby towns to participate in the services. An aged man was wending his way to the city on foot when he was overtaken by a young theological student the two walked on in company. Despite the difference in their ages, they had much in common, and so they enjoyed chatting together as they jogged on toward their intended goal. At noontime they turned aside to a grassy copse and sat down to eat the lunch which each had brought with him, first giving God thanks for his gracious provision. Afterwards the aged pilgrim suggested that they pray together before continuing their journey. The young theologue was a bit embarrassed, but agreed, intimating that the elder man should pray first, which he did. Addressing God as his father in all simplicity, he poured out his heart in thanksgiving, then uttered three specific requests, he reminded the Lord that he was very hard of hearing and if he did not get a seat well up to the front in the kirk he would get little out of the sermon that evening, so he asked that a seat be kept for him near enough to the pulpit so he could get the benefit of the message, secondly, he told the Lord that his shoes were badly worn and not fit for city streets, he Pleaded for a new pair though he had not the siller to purchase them, last of all, he asked for a place to stay for the night, as he knew no one in Aberdeen and did not know where to look for accommodations. By this time the student's eyes were wide open as he looked upon the old man with mingled disgust and amazement, thinking it the height of impertinence to burden deity with such trivialities. When his turn came to pray, he delivered himself of an eloquent, carefully composed discourse, which in turn amazed his older companion, who saw in it nothing that indicated a making known of his needs to God the Father. Proceeding on their way, they reached the kirk just as the people were crowding in, it was soon evident that there was no longer even standing room left.
The student thought, now we shall see what becomes of his presumptuous prayers. He'll see that God has more to do than to use his time saving a seat for a poor, old, countryman. However, someone came out and the old man was just able to squeeze inside the door, where he stood with his hand up to his ear trying to hear what was going on. Just then, it happened that a young lady in a front pew turned and saw him. She called a sexton and said, My father told me to hold our pew for him until time for the sermon, then, if he did not get here, to give it to someone else. Evidently, he has been detained. Will you please go back and bring up that old man who has his hand to his ear and is standing just inside the door? In a few moments, petition number one was fully answered. Now, in Scotland, some folks always kneel for prayer, as the minister leads, others reverently rise to their feet. The old man was the kneeling kind and the young woman always stood. As she looked down, she could not help observing the worn soles on the feet of the kneeling worshipper. Her father was a shoe dealer. At the close of the service, she delicately approached the subject of the need of a better pair of shoes and asked if she might take him to her father's store, though closed for the night, and present him with a pair. Needless to say, her offer was accepted as graciously as it was made. So petition number two was answered. At the store the lady inquired where he was to stay for the night. In all simplicity he answered, I dinna ken yet. My father has a room for me, but he has no told me where it is. Puzzled for a moment, she exclaimed, Oh, you mean your father, God. Well, I believe we have that room for you. We were saving our guest room for the Reverend Dr. Blank, but a telegram came this morning saying he could not come, so now you must just come home with me and be our guest. And so the third petition was granted. The next day the student inquired as to the outcome of the prayer and was astonished to find that God had heard and answered each particular plea. He is never too busy to heed the cries of his needy people. What we all require is more confidence in his love and more earnestness and directness in prayer. Verbal Inspiration Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, 1 Corinthians 2 verses 12 and 13. Those who object to the use of the term verbal inspiration as applied to the Holy Scriptures, often speak of it contemptuously as the stenographic theory of inspiration, implying thereby that it puts God in the position of a business or literary man dictating to a secretary, who in turn transcribes the exact words the employer has uttered. In opposition to this, they point to the diversities of style among Old and New Testament writers and gather from this that such a theory as verbal inspiration is utterly absurd. They rather believe, if they accept inspiration at all, that God revealed the truth to different individuals and they set it forth in their own language according to the measure of understanding which they had. Needless to say, this latter view would do away altogether with exactness in divine revelation, and any thinking person who has had experience in dictating to stenographers will realize how readily individual attainments of culture and understanding may be taken into account when using secretarial help. It has been part of my responsibility for a great many years to dictate literally hundreds and thousands of letters, and also manuscript for many books, pamphlets and periodicals, and I have invariably found that it was important to keep in mind the mentality and education of my secretaries. I recall how, a number of years ago, I was preparing a book on the Epistle to the Philippians. 
It was coming out serially in a monthly magazine. My publishers wired me that they were out of material and would like more within a few days. I was holding special meetings in a western city at the time and staying in a hotel. Having no other stenographic help at hand, I sought out the public stenographer in the hotel and she agreed to take dictation on a chapter or two of my book. I gave it to her as I would have done to my own well-taught secretary had she been with me. It was the first time I had ever used one in this capacity who knew absolutely nothing of the Bible, and I did not realize how strange many biblical terms must have seemed to her. When she brought the manuscript to me it was with difficulty that I could conceal either my mirth or indignation. I was paying her by the hour and the manuscript was almost worthless. I had to go over all of it, making scores of corrections on every page, and then she had to do it all over again and, of course, I paid double for it. In the very beginning I noticed she had entitled the manuscript Paul's Epistle to the Philippine Islands. Every theological term was misconstrued. Propitiation had been changed into prostration and other terms were represented by words that could not by any possibility have any reference to the subject in question. This taught me a great lesson. From that time on, when giving dictation, I have always taken into account the capabilities and the knowledge of scripture of my secretaries. It is impossible to be too grateful for a secretary who knows the word of God herself and readily appreciates religious terminology. On the other hand, it is often exasperating when circumstances are different, and yet I have found that by a little care I can generally adapt myself to the understanding of the amanuensis. For instance, it is not necessary to say propitiation if the word atonement will do instead. I do not have to speak of sanctification if I can express the same thought by the word set apart. And so it would be actually possible for my various secretaries to exhibit a style of their own in the matter which they prepared at my dictation. In a far higher sense than this, may we not think of God accommodating himself to the intelligence and culture of the writers of sacred scripture, so that he expresses himself in one way through a poet like David or Isaiah, and in an altogether different manner through a farmer like Amos, or a fisherman like Simon Peter. Thus you have remarkable diversity in scripture, coupled with marvelous unity of thought, because holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Ribbon of Blue Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribband, ribbon, of blue. That ye may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God, Numbers 15 verses 38 to 40. Blue is the heavenly color. The ribbon opound blue on the border of the Israelites' robe was to be a constant reminder that he belonged to the God of heaven, and was responsible to so behave himself as to glorify his heavenly master. The story is told of a young dauphin, or crown prince, of France, who was placed under the care of an English tutor that he might be educated for his high and lofty station. The tutor often found it very difficult to control the young prince, who was very high-spirited and independent. Not possessing the authority to administer punishment to one in such an exalted position, the tutor finally hit upon a plan whereby he hoped to ensure better behavior. One morning he produced a purple rosette, which he fastened upon the jacket of the prince, explaining that as it was the royal color, it was to be worn as an evidence of his regal station. If, said the tutor, I ever find you behaving in an unprincely manner, I shall simply point to the rosette, and you will understand. It proved to be a most effective method of discipline. 
Occasionally, the prince would indulge in an outburst of unseemly language or act in an unworthy manner. The silent appeal to the purple was enough to bring him to his senses and to procure an apology and a promise of better self-control in the future. So believers today are responsible to behave in accordance with their heavenly relationship to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith they are called. The ribbon of blue is to be seen upon all our garments as we walk through this world to the glory of God. Copper Nails When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long, Psalms 32 verse 3. There is nothing that so takes the joy out of life like unconfessed sin on the conscience. I once heard the late Dr. F. E. Marsh tell that on one occasion he was preaching on this question and urging upon his hearers the importance of confession of sin and wherever possible, of restitution for wrong done to others. At the close a young man, a member of the church, came up to him with a troubled countenance. Pastor, he explained, you have put me in a sad fix. I have wronged another and I am ashamed to confess it or to try to put it right. You see, I am a boatbuilder and the man I work for is an infidel. I have talked to him often about his need of Christ and have urged him to come and hear you preach, but he scoffs and ridicules it all. Now, I have been guilty of something that, if I should acknowledge it to him, will ruin my testimony forever. He then went on to say that some time ago he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. In this work copper nails are used because they do not rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive and the young man had been carrying home quantities of them to use on the job. He knew it was stealing, but he tried to salve his conscience by telling himself that the master had so many he would never miss them and besides he was not being paid all that he thought he deserved. But this sermon had brought him to face the fact that he was just a common thief, for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But, said he, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I have done or offer to pay for those I have used and return the rest. If I do he will think I am just a hypocrite. And yet those copper nails are digging into my conscience and I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. For weeks the struggle went on. Then one night he came to Dr. Marsh and exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled for the copper nails and my conscience is relieved at last. What happened when you confessed to your employer what you had done, asked the pastor. Oh, he answered, he looked queerly at me, then exclaimed, George, I always did think you were just a hypocrite but now I begin to feel there's something in this Christianity after all. Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offered to settle for them must be worth having. Dr. Marsh asked if he might use the story and was granted permission. Sometime afterwards, he told it in another city. The next day a lady came up and said, Doctor, I have had copper nails on my conscience too. Why, surely, you are not a boat builder. No, but I am a book lover and I have stolen a number of books from a friend of mine who gets far more than I could ever afford. I decided last night I must get rid of the copper nails, so I took them all back to her today and confessed my sin. I can't tell you how relieved I am. She forgave me, and God has forgiven me. I am so thankful the copper nails are not digging into my conscience anymore. I have told this story many times and almost invariably people have come to me afterwards telling of copper nails in one form or another that they had to get rid of. On one occasion, I told it at a high school chapel service. The next day the principal saw me and said, as a result of that copper nail story, 
ever so many stolen fountain pens and other things have been returned to their rightful owners. Reformation and restitution do not save. But where one is truly repentant and has come to God in sincere confession, he will want to the best of his ability to put things right with others. Magnifying Christ Christ may be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, Phil 120. It is the business of a Christian to so manifest the Spirit of Christ in his life that men and women will fall in love with our blessed Lord. People generally know little about Christ, but a devoted life magnifies and glorifies Him, thus leading them to trust Him for themselves. A striking instance of this come to my notice some years ago when I was engaged in a special evangelistic campaign among the mission stations of northern Arizona where devoted workers were seeking to present Christ to the Navajo and Hopi Indians. In company with Rev. Fred G. Mitchell, veteran missionary to these neglected people, I went one day to the mission hospital at Ganado. There my attention was drawn to a Navajo woman who occupied a bed in one of the small wards. She could not speak any English and my Navajo education was limited to about half a dozen words, so we could not carry on any animated conversation. Standing near her, M. Ting Mitchell told me her story. In the desert some ten weeks before, the missionary doctor had found her in a dying condition. The real circumstances were so horrible I shall not commit them to paper. Her cries of anguish had drawn the doctor to the place where she had lain helpless for four days and nights without food or drink. By that time, her case seemed absolutely hopeless. She was paralyzed from the waist down, could not move about, gangrene had set in and she was in a most pitiable state. A cursory examination led the doctor to feel that her case was hopeless. But he wrapped a clean blanket about her filthy body, put her in his car and hurried her to the mission station. He learned afterwards that the Indian medicine man had pow-wowed over her for some 48 hours and then announced that she was possessed of an evil spirit that could not be driven out. It was best to get her as far away from the Hogan as possible, as otherwise the demons would haunt the place where she died, making it unsafe for others to dwell there. In the hospital, further examination convinced the doctor that an operation might possibly save her life, but it would be a most dangerous and delicate one and with perhaps one chance in a hundred that she might recover. The little group of missionaries were called in for prayer and the doctor undertook the operation. Mr. Mitchell told me that for nine days and nights afterwards he kept the patient under almost constant observation. Finally her fever disappeared and it was evident that she was on the road to recovery. As consciousness returned and she found herself in the comfortable hospital bed, waited on by a kind, little Navajo Christian nurse and assiduously looked after by the doctor, she was filled with wonder and amazement. When able to speak, she inquired of the nurse. Why did he do this for me? My own people threw me out to die, nobody wanted me, and he came and brought me here and has brought me back to life. Why did he do it? He is no relative of mine. I am a Navajo, and he is a white man. I cannot understand why he should do all this for me. The nurse replied, It is because of the love of Christ. Love of Christ, she exclaimed. I never heard of love of Christ. What is the love of Christ? What do you mean? The nurse tried to explain, but felt she was not making it clear, so she called for one of the missionaries. For some fifteen days after that, one missionary or another talked to the patient for a few hours each morning. 
In order to make her understand, it was necessary to go clear back to the creation and make plain why Christ came into the world. The young woman listened with deep interest, her large gazelle-like eyes searching the missionary's face constantly as if for confirmation of so wonderful a story. Finally, when she seemed to be well on the road to life again and her mind was clear and bright, the missionaries thought the time had come to urge her to definite decision. So they held another little prayer meeting together and then once more Mr. Mitchell told the story of redeeming love and tenderly inquired, My dear younger sister, which is the characteristic way of addressing a Navajo Indian younger than oneself, do you not now understand about the love of Christ? Can you not take this blessed Savior for yourself? Will you not put your trust in Him, turning away from the idols of your people, and worship the one true and living God? He has come to earth in the person of His Son and now He asks you to trust Him for yourself. In simple words he presented the claims of Christ for some time, but there was no answer. The woman lay there perfectly quiet, but it was evident she was thinking everything over. After some little time, the door at the other end of the ward was opened, and the doctor looked in just to make sure that everything was all right with his patient. She looked up and her bright eyes expressed the gratitude she felt as she softly replied in the liquid tongue of the Navajos, If Jesus is anything like the doctor, I can trust him forever. She had seen Christ magnified in a man and her heart was one. Holding on to spikes. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous in this generation. Genesis 7 verse 1. Noah, like Abraham, is a very striking example of one who has been declared righteous because of his faith. It was faith that led him to prepare an ark for the saving of his house, when there seemed no evidence of a coming flood. It was faith that led him to obey God and enter that ark, with all his family, when commanded to do so by God. Inside the ark all were secure until the deluge was over. They were kept by omnipotent power, the ark bore all the brunt of the storm. Noah and his household were shut in by God, who had himself closed the door. The same hand that shut them and shut all the unbelieving antediluvian world outside. The ark was a type of Christ. All who are in Christ are eternally secure. Suppose when the ark was completed God had said, Now, Noah, go and get eight large, strong spikes and drive them into the side of the ark. Imagine Noah procuring these spikes and doing as commanded. Then when each spike was securely fastened, let us presume that God said, Come thou and all thy house and take hold of these spikes, and all who hang on to the end of the flood will be saved. How long do you think Noah and the rest would have been secure? I can imagine each one taking hold of a spike, then the waters rising as the rain poured down. In a few minutes they would have been soaked to the skin. Then think of the terrific strain on joints and muscles as the ark was lifted from the earth and began its perilous voyage through the raging waters. I think I hear Noah calling to his wife, Mother, how is it going, is all well? And she calls back, I'm holding on. Do pray for me that I may be able to hold out to the end. Soon poor Mrs. Ham would cry out, It's no use, can't hang on any longer. I am going to backslide. And she would let go and be swept away by the flood. How long do you suppose it would be before every one of them would be obliged to let go and so go down to death? Thank God, that is not a true picture of his salvation. He is not calling men to hang on to Christ. But just as Noah entered into the ark and found their perfect security, so every believer is in Christ and saved for eternity. It is not a question of our ability to hang on, 
but of Christ's ability to carry us safely through to the glory. He who has begun the good work in us will perfect it until the day of manifestation. Possessing our possessions. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, a bad seventeen. While God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, many Christians fail woefully when it comes to the enjoyment of those things which are ours by divine bequeathment. Many of us have never really explored the good land which the grace of God has opened up to us. All of Canaan was given to Israel by God before they ever set foot upon it, but, as they were about to enter under Joshua, he told them that every place that the sole of their feet should tread on should be theirs. As they went through the length and breadth and found out for themselves what God had given them, they took possession of city after city and district after district, but never until the balmy days of King Solomon did they really possess it in all its fullness. They soon lost their hold on it, however, because of sin and unbelief, but Obadiah tells us that, in a future day, the house of Israel shall possess their possessions. That will be when the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in glory on this earth and Israel will be restored to God. For us as Christians there is a great lesson in all this, a lesson which we have been slow to learn, and that to our own great loss. The story is told of a man who obtained by inheritance a beautiful country estate. As he lived in the city he thought it best to dispose of this estate and use the money he would obtain from it in some other way. Getting in touch with a widely known real estate firm, he instructed them to go out and make a careful examination of the house, outbuildings, and the land belonging to the estate, and write it up in such a way as to make it seem attractive to anyone who was looking for a home in the country. When all his instruction had been carried out, a representative of the firm brought in the draft of the advertisement, which they intended to insert in various papers. In this ad, the old home was described in glowing terms, the beautiful porches, the large hallway, the circular staircase, the drawing rooms, living rooms and sleeping apartments, and all the different appointments which made for a perfect country home. The billowing lawns, trees, shrubbery, gardens and contiguous farming ground were also pictured in language calculated to arouse the interest of anyone who desired such a country estate. As the agent read the description, the owner of the estate listened carefully, making no comment. At the close, the agent inquired, What do you think of that? That ought to sell it, do you not think so? The owner replied, Well to be frank, I have changed my mind, I have decided not to sell. I have wanted a place like that all my life and I had no idea that this estate was just exactly what I have been longing for. Your description has shown me what a fool I would be to part with it. So I will pay you for the work you have done, but you need not make any effort to sell it, I will live there myself. Doubtless, the agent was disappointed as he saw a large fee disappearing, but the owner had learned the value of his possessions and soon moved in and enjoyed what he had been so ready before to pass on to someone else. Are not many of us like this man? In God's word we have unfolded for us the riches of our inheritance in Christ, and yet we fail to enter into and enjoy that which has been purchased for us at such a cost. The Hands of the Savior They pierced my hands and my feet, Psalms 22 verse 16. What are these wounds in thine hands? Zechariah 13 verse 6. Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, John 20 verse 27. The wounds in the hands of Jesus will remain, I take it, throughout eternity as the marks of his love for us. 
When he left this world he bore the nail marks and when he returns to reign he will be recognized by them as the very same Jesus who died on the cross for sinners. Some years ago, a poor woman, baptized a Roman Catholic, was lying very ill in a city hospital. Fearing she must die, she was in great distress of mind because of the weight of her sins pressing down upon her guilty conscience. A sweet-faced nun, passing through the ward, was called Co the bedside of this dying woman, and to her she told the story of years of sin and shame. The nun promised to get in touch with the parish priest and to send him to see her, so he might hear her confession and administer the last rites of the church. In the meantime, a Christian lady was visiting the patients and came to the woman's bed and found her very ready to hear the gospel story of free and full salvation through the crucified and risen Savior. Eagerly the poor, distressed one drank in the living water, came to Christ, confessing her sins, and was soon rejoicing in the knowledge of forgiveness and acceptance with God. When the priest arrived, he found her as happy now as she had been miserable. But he at once began to make preparations to hear her confession and then to administer the last sacraments of the church. He begged her to make a good confession, that he might absolve her from all her sins and so prepare her for death. She looked up earnestly and said, Let me see your hand first. Thinking her mind was wandering, he pleaded with her again, as the time was getting short, to confess all her sins and obtain forgiveness. Once more came the insistent demand. Let me see your hand first, father. In order to humor her, he held up his hand. She took it in one of hers and felt it carefully, then she exclaimed. It won't do, father. The hand of the one who forgives all my sins has a nail print in it. As she was deaf to all entreaties to confess to him, the priest left, feeling her case was hopeless. But instead of that, hers was a sure and certain hope, founded on the word of God, to him give all the prophets witness, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10 verse 43. She bore a faithful testimony to saving grace and died triumphantly. The hands of Christ seemed very frail, for they were broken by a nail. But only they reach heaven at last, whom those frail broken hands hold fast. Hasty Conclusions Judge not, that ye be not judged, Matt 7 1. The folly of snap judgments of others is well illustrated by a story the late Bishop Potter of New York used to tell on himself. He was sailing for Europe in one of the great transatlantic liners. When he went on board, he found another passenger was to share the cabin with him. After going to see his accommodations, he came up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he never availed himself of that privilege, but he had been to his cabin and had met the man who was to occupy the other berth and, judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he might not be a very trustworthy person. The purser accepted the responsibility of caring for the valuables and remarked, It's all right, Bishop, I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here and left his for the same reason. One is reminded of the lines of Robbie Burns, Oh, what some power the gifty G.I.E.S. to see ourselves as others see us. It is very easy to form snap judgments, only to find out afterwards that they are utterly unfounded. Love believeth all things, hopeth all things.